The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program this Friday morning. Let's get into your headlines. The U.S. overtakes China and Italy as the country with the most COVID-19 cases, with New York as the epicenter amid warnings the health system is already becoming overwhelmed. The dollar looks set to mark its biggest weekly decline in a decade, while the Dow closes sharply higher to log its best three-day rally in over 90 years. Well, the Fed Chair Jerome Powell tells NBC the U.S. may well be already in recession, but reassures the markets the central bank will not run out of tools as its balance sheet balloons to $5 trillion. When it comes to this lending, we're not going to run out of ammunition. That doesn't happen. Um, you know, we set the interest rates in time at what we think is the right, giving the economy the right level of support. And $5 trillion is also the magic number for the G20 as leaders vow to inject that amount into the global economy in a rare united pledge to do whatever it takes. The race for a vaccine will speak to Novartis CEO Vaz Narasimhan after the announcement of a new industry collaboration to beat COVID-19. The U.S. now has the highest number of coronavirus infections in the world, overtaking China and Italy. That's more than 82,000 Americans who have now tested positive for the virus. The death rate has risen to nearly 1,300. That news broke while President Trump was holding his daily press conference. The U.S. leader said it was because of the amount of testing the country is now doing, and he repeated his desire to reopen parts of the economy. We have to get back to work. Our people want to work. They want to go back. They have to go back. And uh, we're going to be talking about dates. We're going to be talking uh, with a lot of great professionals. But... This is a country that was built on getting it done, and our people want to go back to work. I think it's going to happen pretty quickly. A lot of progress is made, but we got to go back to work. We may take sections of our country, we may take large sections of our country that aren't so seriously affected, and we may do it that way, but uh, we've got to start the process pretty soon. President Trump, well, a record 3.3 million Americans filed for unemployment benefits last week, dwarfing estimates. The figure was a five-fold increase over the previous high set in 1982. It is the first full week of claims since cities and states started banning public gatherings and imposing lockdowns. The U.S. Labor Department blamed the sudden jump in virus-related layoffs adding that the accommodation and food service industries were hit particularly hard by the spread of the infection. Members of the U.S. House of Representatives are racing to Washington due to concerns the passage of a $2 trillion stimulus bill could now be delayed. The lower chamber was expected to approve the measure with a sparsely attended voice vote to limit the risk of spreading the virus. But now it's feared one member may seek an in-person roll call vote. The House is still expected to pass the bill later today.
Fed Chair Jerome Powell sat down for a rare television interview with NBC's Today programme. He acknowledged the threat posed by the virus on the US economy, but addressed fears over the central bank's ability to handle the crisis. What we see is um, small, medium and large businesses uh, are not able to borrow through their normal channels to some extent. And so we step in and replace that. That's a very healthy thing. That's a positive thing. We're providing relief. We're providing stability to get us. We're trying to create a bridge from our very strong economy to another place of economic strength. And that's what our lending really does. It's very broad. It's across small, medium and large businesses. We'll want, we're already helping state and local governments and just places where, 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 inter, where credit is not being offered where it should be offered, where we're really just, it's really just a question of liquidity and credit availability. We can step in and make that happen. And that's a very positive thing and an appropriate thing to do in this highly unusual situation we're in. The other issue that comes up is whether or not you might run out of ammo, run out of bullets. And, and, and to that point, are, are you sorry that you didn't raise interest rates a little more when the economy was strong so you'd have more cushion now? When it comes to this lending, we're not going to run out of ammunition. That doesn't happen. Um, you know, we set the interest rates in time at what we think is the right, giving the economy the right level of support. If we'd raised interest rates more, it would have been higher than we thought, and economic growth would have been a little bit slower, so it wouldn't have mattered in the end. So we really are always setting our interest rates at the level we think is appropriate, and we've cut them to zero now. We still have room to policy room in other dimensions to support the economy, but the main thing we're doing now is really with our lending programs. That's the principal thing we're doing now to support the economy is through that channel. And if I'm sitting at home right now and I lost my job or I'm a restaurant owner and I laid off every single one of my workers or I own a nail salon and I had to close up shop, does anything the Federal Reserve doing right now help me? Yes. Well, so keeping rates low will uh, will reduce the interest burden on people. Keeping the, the flow of credit will, uh, will will help people. Principally, though, I would look to the legislation that passed last night or this morning really, uh, which is going to direct aid to small, medium and large businesses, to low and moderate income communities, to the unemployed, uh, to state and local governments, to the healthcare system. That's really where the immediate relief is going to come from. The help from the Fed will be when the economy begins to rebound, then we'll be there to, to make sure that that, that rebound is as, as strong as possible. Uh, Fed Chief Jay Powell speaking to CNBC, the U.S. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin defended Powell's outlook, adding the new stimulus bill will help the economy recover from the pandemic. The president wants to make sure that all American workers are protected. They, they did nothing wrong. This was a, an act of the government for medical reasons to shut down parts of the economy. And as the Fed chair said, we, we had a very, very healthy economy. We will have a healthy economy. We will, we will win this war, as the president says, against this virus. The U.S. Treasury Secretary, hedge fund manager Paul Tudor Jones, who gave an early warning of the impact of the infection in January, says the stock market will see another turbulent month of trading. But the founder of Tudor Investment praised Washington's efforts to bolster the economy. Investors can take heart that we've counteracted this existential shock with the greatest fiscal monetary bazooka. It's not even a bazooka. It's, 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 it's more like uh, a nuclear bomb. That's literally the countermeasures that we brought in to sit there and to bring 
safety to our economic systems. Let's take a look now at the market action we've seen on Wall Street over the course of the week. Uh, looking at futures now, we are in for a fairly muted start to trade on the final day of trade of the week. But this comes after markets were really on a tear this week. The S&P 500 and the Dow post the biggest three-day gain since the 1930s. So we're talking historic moves here. The Dow yesterday, uh, let's take you to those moves. The Dow yesterday gaining more than 1,300 points uh, on pace now for the best week since 1931. But the worst month since 2009. So we are seeing a serious bounce back now, but very important to put this into context of the recent step lower we've seen across U.S. markets. The S&P 500 yesterday gaining just over 6%. Investors shrugging off that catastrophic U.S. jobless claims report. Investors were bracing for millions of jobless claims to come through. We did get confirmation of that, uh, but now investors looking at the safety that the stimulus package from uh, the Senate will provide also the unprecedented measures by Federal Reserve and and the Chair Jerome Powell leading those efforts. So putting it all together, strong day of trade yesterday, NASDAQ up about 5.6%. Industrials, the leader for the week, energy, the worst performer for the month. Now let's take a look at the dollar because uh, the greenback has seen also some pretty interesting moves this week. The dollar continues to weaken. Yesterday, the dollar index stepping down just uh, about 1.6%. For the week, though, the dollar index is now down 3.5% on pace for the biggest weekly decline in a decade. So very interesting moves there. And the level for that dollar index stands at 98.96. Let's take a look at Asian markets, what the final session of the week is bringing uh, Uh, We've got the Shanghai Composite and the Hang Seng trading slightly higher this morning uh, to the tune uh, of about 0.7% and 0.9%. Over in Japan, the Nikkei 225 up 3.9%. It's been a fairly volatile week for the Nikkei. Uh, Earlier on, we saw a one-day gain of about 8%, some pension fund rebalancing taking place there. Uh, And then, of course, news that the uh, Olympics will be postponed to 2021. Also, we're looking at uh, lockdown in Tokyo uh, potentially this weekend. That's the for Asian markets. What does this all mean for European markets? Let's take a look at opening calls. Just like U.S. futures, we are looking at a fairly muted start to trade on this Friday morning. The DAX looking at about an 81-point drop at the open. The biggest mover poised to be the Italian market, the FTSE MIB, indicating about 140 points lower. This follows some gains yesterday for the stock 600. It gained about 2.5%, its third positive session in a row. Jeff? Thanks very much indeed uh, for that, Juliana. So uh, Steve's been on his travels all week, uh, as you know. Uh, I think this morning the director must have said to him, you choose, you pick anywhere you want to go in London, anywhere that feels like home for you. So where are you this morning, Steve? Jeffrey, the director's been letting me choose all week, would you believe? I'll hasten to add. But uh, yeah, we'll discuss it more in a few moments' time. But uh, yeah, I'd have come back to my old neck of the woods. Uh, I am an East Londoner, as many people know over the years as well. A refined East Londoner, I'd like to say. Uh, and I'm pl- basically here on the old Eton Manor site for those old Eastenders out there, but which is more famously known as the Olympic Park. And I thought it was an interesting metaphor, actually, uh, for the biggest sporting story of the week, which is, uh, of course, the cancellation of the Olympics, which... Uh, is a $10 billion decision potentially as well. And of course, uh, postponed till next week. We can talk more about the Olympics and that in a little break, but I think we were going to chat about the markets as well, Jeff. 
Uh, well, give us your thoughts then. So here we are. We've had um, uh, three days of uh, upside here. There's clearly a better tone in the markets overall in liquidity terms. If you look at the fixed income side, whether it's the MBS market, the Treasury market, the IG market, there is a more positive tone. But let me just chuck in a couple of worrying uh, notions to you. One, I was looking at the Refinitiv uh, Lipper data on fund flow. And you ask yourself, where is the money going? Where is it parking itself at the moment? Money market market uh, uh, outflow, sorry, money market inflow. So into money market funds, effectively, that's cash, positive $260 billion. Uh, bond funds outflow, $62 billion. Equity funds outflow, $27 billion. That is just uh, data for this week here. So people are moving to the sides and they are looking for the security of cash here, which I guess may raise some questions about the breadth of the three-day rebound that we've seen in some key markets at this point. It certainly feels, given the way we've gone negative on the short end of the U.S. Treasury curve as well, that nobody at this point thinks that we are done yet in terms of some of the selling pressure. Absolutely. Yeah, look, look, here's the drill. Most people are invested, whether it's their 401ks, their mutuals, their pensions, most people are invested in the stock market, no matter what is going on on the cash and the liberal flows on the side as well. Most people have the stock market and most people are probably going to stick with the bulk of their position. Now, everyone in between the investor space and the day trader space, the, the Ackmans of this world, of course, are making interesting pro uh, propositions on CNBC and then making vast amounts of money out of it thereafter, are playing these market swings. And good luck to anyone who can do that, by the way. It's a real skill. Uh, and I have nothing but admiration for people who can play those swings, both on the short side who have been lambasted by some stupid regulators on the continent uh, and on the long side as well, because that's obviously a very brave trade at the moment. But it's the lack of information. You cannot trade on a full set of information. We all know that because the information is coming not from the economic world. It's coming from the pandemic world. It's coming from the coronavirus. It's coming from the scientists and the medical experts as well, because this is all about a favorite word of Michelle Barnier. And we hope Michelle Barnier, by the way, is getting better because he, of course, did test positive uh, last week for coronavirus. It's all about the word sequencing. Now, everything economic, and this is why I have such lack of interest in the economic data at the moment. I know it's devastating to see such a huge jump in jobless claims yesterday as well. But actually, we don't know the full ramification and the length of those jobless claims uh, increases until we know what's going on in the science and the battle against coronavirus. So back to sequencing. Until economies uh, and in Europe and the United States and globally get on top of what's happening with coronavirus, you cannot make economic predictions about what's happening in two weeks, three months, or three years. It is just virtually impossible to do so. I mean, look, for instance, Fatty Birol in the last 24 hours has been talking about, well, we may well see 10 million barrels coming off uh, demand. Well, Fatty Birol told us uh, a couple of weeks ago that the demand in 2020 could well be flat. So look at the huge difference in projections we're all putting in there, even exports like uh, experts like Fatty Birol as well. So the economics and the markets are totally secondary to the battle against coronavirus. Until we know that, everything else is just a punt in one way or other. And, and let's be honest about it. That's what people are doing on the markets at the moment. Sad, Steve, in terms of what people are doing on the markets, let's take note of the date. It's March 27th. We're coming up to the end of the month. Portfolio rebalancing will be a big driver of the push into equities that we've seen. If you run a 40-60 bond equity portfolio, portfolio, and now that's going to look more like 50-50, so you're going to have to reposition. So next week, fresh month, we'll see. That'll be a good test how much of this rally has actually been driven just by portfolio rebalancing. 
Look, you know I agree with that always. And I, I'm, a, I'm a bit very interested end of quarter, end of half year, end of year balancing as well. If nothing else, to see what bonuses the industry tries to extract out of those certainly full year uh, moves as well. I, I've seen the old mark to market tricks myself when I was in the business. But the fact of the matter is, I think this time round, you've had your big moves. I mean, you've had your 30 odd percent down. Yes, you've had this quite extraordinary 20 odd percent rally. But does it really matter uh, in the medium term what these oscillations are? I think actually you have to kind of look Again, dare I say, even on the fund flows, as I said, on the data and indeed uh, on the broader market levels, you have to look over the longer term. Because let's face it, if coronavirus isn't beaten in the short term, these markets will definitely, definitely tank. If we are seeing peak levels of coronavirus and antibody tests successfully getting people back to work and the economy back on track, if we see that in the next few weeks as well, this market's off to the races. It's all about the science. This, of course, is, uh, to date myself in movie terms, Steve, a layered cake, though. And we know that much. And I, uh, that sort of um, knits into your East End uh, location as well a little bit, I think, that movie. But the point is this. You've got to figure out why you're in the market and what your intended duration in the market is likely to be. Because if you are just punting around the levels at the moment, well, good luck to you. Uh, we know that Every now and again, the steamroller takes one of those kind of investors out and it's never very pretty. But the point is, I think Credit Suisse have have, uh, had a good look at 10 sectors that they feel are investable at the moment or are worth looking at. And I I have some sympathy with um, looking around. If you if you liked it at uh, 20 percent more, then surely you're going to like it at 20 percent less. And they have some interesting themes that are emerging here. And I just wanted to uh, uh, name call them a, a moment here. Edutainment health tech, defensive dividends, and bombed out conviction stocks. And that sounds like four sensible approaches if you are looking for an opportunity to get into a market that is beaten up at this point, you don't care whether you get it exactly at the bottom, but you do like the themes for the longer term because inevitably this will end. We will come out of this. Markets will rebound. And at some point you will see the benefit of your acumen. Unarguable, apart from one point. Uh, And again, I think you're absolutely right. If you are a longer term investor and you did like it, as you say, 20% higher, you are absolutely right. And if you've got your cash on the sidelines to do, then do it. Why not? But, but, and I'm going to quote you back at yourself, Jeff, and I think I've already done this a couple of times this week. You're the man who's the economic historian on these markets. You're very, very good at this as well. You know how long it took from the 30s to the 50s to get back to previous heights as well. You're absolutely right about the rebound, but it may take a long time. Steve, we're going to leave you there for the moment. We'll come back in just a second. Uh, and just to point out, we will catch up with uh, Philippe uh, Lissabac. That's at 7 o'clock local. That's 8 o'clock CET. He joins us from Credit Suisse. We're going to talk about why they have put a little overweight, a little, little small overweight back on developed markets. We'll get into that conversation a little later on. Uh, for more on the extraordinary market moves we've seen this week, head to our website, find out why one analyst believes the S&P just hit a level that could spark the next major decline. That is on CNBC.com. Well, I've said it on air before and I'll say it again. I think the NHS is a stunning institution. And what do you think the Danny Boyle centrepiece of the Olympic opening ceremony was here in East London back in 2012? 
Yes, it was a huge display of support for the NHS in the stadium behind me, the Queen Elizabeth Stadium as well. So we are live here in East London this morning to not only talk about markets, not only talk about the magnificent National Health Service in the UK, but also to talk about the biggest sporting story of the week, and that is the cancellation for now, the postponement till 2021 of the Tokyo Olympics. That after, of course, the very successful Rio Olympics, the successful London Olympics. What will happen to 2020 Tokyo Olympics? We'll find out after the break. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Profits of China's industrial firms collapsed at the beginning of the year as the virus outbreak forced factory closures and disrupted supply chains. Profits earned fell a record 38% in the first two months from a year earlier. The decline followed a 6% drop in December. At the G20 meeting, which was held via video link, Chinese President Xi Jinping urged international cooperation to stop the world from plunging into recession as it battles the virus crisis. At the most difficult moment in our fight against the outbreak, China received assistance and help from a lot of members of the global community. Such expressions of friendship will always be remembered and cherished by the Chinese people. Major infectious disease is the enemy of all. As we speak, the COVID-19 outbreak is spreading worldwide, posing enormous threat to life and health and bringing formidable challenges to global public health security. President Xi and U.S. President Donald Trump did not directly address each other during that G20 video conference. But in the early hours today, Trump tweeted that he just finished a, quote, very good conversation with his Chinese counterpart. In the first time they've spoken since February, as the world's two largest economies have taken turns in a blame game over the pandemic. According to the G20 communique, the 20 nations will together inject $5 trillion into the global economy to counteract the impact of the virus. European leaders failed to agree on a strategy to support the economy amid calls to issue joint debt after a six-hour video conference call. Instead, Euro-area finance ministers have been given two weeks to come up with a joint response. EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said a smart plan is required. We discussed with the member states that we need an intelligent strategy that at the same time protects the health of our citizens and keeps our economy afloat and our goods and cross-border workers moving. And it is only in this way that we can provide health services with the medical gear and equipment they need, the factories with the components to build ventilators, for example, and our supermarkets with the goods to fill their shelves. Sylvia Amaro now joins us with more. Sylvia, flesh it out for us. What happened last night on this epic video conference? Good morning, Juliana. Well, we essentially saw the traditional divide between North and South Europe emerging once again. As you mentioned, they were discussing for uh, uh, 
what you do regarding the economic impact of the virus for about six hours. And yet they did not take any new meaningful decisions. The meeting lasted much longer than expected with the different countries arguing over the details of one specific paragraph in their joint communique. So essentially the conflict that we saw last night saw Spain, Italy, France and Portugal pushing for much more radical steps to tackle the economic impact, such as the prospect of joint debt issuance. However, there was fierce opposition from other countries, in particular the Netherlands, but also Austria, who believe, guys, that the ESM is actually the best fiscal instrument to develop and focus on rather than coming up with the so-called corona bonds. But because of this divide, at the end of the meeting, there was no statement indicating if the EU will actually develop the ESM or indeed issue joint debt. So the heads of state only managed to ask their finance ministers to present new ideas within two weeks. So let's see if the Eurogroup will actually manage to come to a consensus, given that the leaders did not. And the finance ministers themselves have also failed to reach an agreement before. In the meantime, I have to tell you guys that some countries are really angry, really angry. The divide over issuing joint European debt is really deep. And that was very clear from the statement from the prime ministers at the end of the video call. Sylvia, thank you very much for fleshing it out for us. Uh, we'll look forward to these two weeks. We'll see if anything can get agreed. Now, we'll have more on the potential proposals of finance ministers when we speak to Belgium's deputy prime minister and finance minister, Alexander de Croo, later on this show. That interview is coming up at 8.30 CET. And we're going to talk about the race to find a vaccine for COVID-19. Real privilege to have the CEO of Novartis joining us on the program. Uh, Vaz Narasimhan will be up very shortly and we're going to get a take on uh, whether this uh, touted uh, uh, remedy from President Trump um, has legs. We'll be right back. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, The Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Welcome back, everybody. Let's update you on the latest headlines. The U.S. overtakes China and Italy as the country with the most COVID-19 cases, with New York as the epicenter. Amid warnings, the health system is already becoming overwhelmed. The dollar looks set to mark its biggest weekly decline in a decade. The Dow logs its best three-day rally, however, in over 90 years, and the Nikkei records its biggest weekly gain ever. Fed Chair Jerome Powell tells NBC the U.S. economy may well be in a recession already, but says the central bank will not run out of tools as its balance sheet balloons to $5 trillion. When it comes to this lending, we're not going to run out of ammunition. That doesn't happen. Um, you know, we set the interest rates in time at what we think is the right, giving the economy the right level of support. And $5 trillion is also the magic number for the G20 as leaders vow to inject that amount into the global economy in a rare united pledge to, quote, do whatever it takes.
more people have died in Italy from coronavirus than anywhere else in the world. According to Italy's health ministry, the death toll has risen above 8,000, and the total number of fatalities continues to grow. The country remains in total lockdown. Spain has extended its lockdown as the country struggles to obtain medical supplies from China. The death toll now stands at nearly 4,100. It comes just one day after Spain overtook China as the second worst hit country by the pandemic in terms of fatalities. Bosch says it's developed a coronavirus diagnosis tool which is able to detect the virus in just two and a half hours. The German engineering company says the new product means patient samples can be tested on location and no longer need to be transported for analysis. Novartis has announced it will work alongside several other life sciences companies, including Pfizer, GSK, and Merck, to accelerate the development of new treatments and vaccines against COVID-19. Novartis says the new consortium will help the pharma industry pool assets, resources, and expertise in the race to find a cure against the new coronavirus. Vaz Narasimhan, CEO of Novartis, joins us now. Steve, also still with us from London. Vaz, thank you so much for being with us at such a crucial time for uh, the uh, healthcare system around the world. Um, let's kick off with hydroxychloroquine. You are one of the main producers of this anti-malarial generic that President Trump has very vocally touted as a potential remedy for COVID-19. How are the clinical trials going? What are the chances hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine actually proved to be treatments for COVID-19? Well, first, thanks for having me. And I also want to say, uh, you know, how, uh, how much admiration I have for all of the healthcare workers around the world who are working tirelessly to help patients. And we're trying to do our part. Now, with hydroxychloroquine, there's a number of large-scale studies going on right now around the world, properly controlled studies that are looking at using this medicine in hospitalized patients, as well as in what's called a post-exposure prophylaxis, which is giving it to patients who we know uh, may have been exposed to uh, the coronavirus. These trials are enrolling very quickly. They're happening all around the world, in Europe, uh, in the US. Uh, we are sponsoring our own study ourselves, as well as supporting a number of investigator-initiated trials. I expect us to have a lot more data over the coming month. Is it premature, though, to be considering this as a treatment, given it's so, you know, in such early stages, these clinical trials? In your expert opinion, uh, what do you think the prospect is this actually it can be a remedy? Well, with hydroxychloroquine, what we know is in preclinical studies, the drug is quite active against the uh, coronavirus. But these are, of course, not not in human uh, human beings, not in patients. Uh, I think, you know, right now we are seeing the drug being used in treatment protocols in hospitals around the world. I think primarily because uh, physicians are trying to give patients uh, any option uh, they can. I do think it's too soon to know for sure until we have properly controlled randomized studies. When you look at how this is going to, to play out, initially the industry is primarily focused on repurposing existing drugs. Hydroxychloroquine, we have studies ongoing with three of our existing medications. There are many other uh, companies now looking at testing their existing medicines to see either can you kill the virus in people or can you help treat the overreaction the immune system is having to the virus in hospitalized patients? The next phase, and that's part of the uh, collaboration we announced yesterday in collaboration with the Gates Foundation and a number of other companies, is to find novel therapies 
whether those are monoclonal antibodies or small molecule drugs that we can use to treat the infection. And then we hope over the next 18 months to two years, we, we can come back with a vaccine that will ultimately be the definitive way to, to deal with this pandemic. Now, I want to pick you up on that timeline, 18 months to two years, because when we spoke back in January uh, in, in Basel, you said that we could have a vaccine within about 12 months. So are you more pessimistic now? Well, I think we have a candidate vaccine, which is quite impressive. I mean, when you look right now at the global response to coronavirus in the biopharmaceutical and research industry, it's unparalleled. And when I go back in time to my experience 10 years ago with the H1N1 pandemic, what I'm seeing right now is truly extraordinary, the amount of collaboration, the amount of energy. So we have one vaccine in the clinic, others being developed. But the difference in a vaccine, of course, is you're giving it to healthy people. And we need to do the appropriate clinical studies to ensure a vaccine is both safe and effective. And that takes time. That's why I think right now, in the near term, the focus will be taking existing drugs to treat the virus or treat the, auto, the autoimmune reaction or to develop new drugs that can treat people who are severely ill from the infection. That's what I think we can realistically expect over the next 12 months. Okay, so we've touched on the treatment side of things, the vaccine side of things. Let's talk testing now. There's a lot of uh, a lot of excitement around, certainly at the political level, around the antibody test that's being developed. It, do you think this is really going to be a game changer in the global fight against COVID-19? Well, I think it's going to help uh, a lot. And the reason for that is we need a lot more data in order to properly model what's happening with this uh, pandemic. Now, there's two types of diagnostic tests that we typically deploy. One is to see, do individuals have an active infection? And the other is to see with the so-called antibody test to see uh, whether or not somebody had an infection in the past and has circulating antibodies, which we hope will be a kind of natural vaccination and ability to fight the virus with natural antibodies. And what I think that antibody test will show us is what is the true denominator of infection? How many people have already had this virus? And that can help guide public health measures. So I'm quite hopeful that will help us much better model the, the epidemic, the, the pandemic around the world. Right now, we're in a little bit of a data vacuum, a lot of assumptions being made. I, I'm hopeful we can tighten that up over the next couple of months. Vaz, it's really great to get your view on this as well. But I want to look backwards and I want to look forwards as well. You were the subject of an article in the New York Times on the 1st of August last year where you were quoted as saying, and I'll quote the big headline, we are not at all ready for a global pandemic. That was on the 1st of August 2019. There's an article in foreignpolicy.com this week that said, actually, the coronavirus is the greatest US intelligence failure of all time. And that includes Pearl Harbor and other things. And the article said it was all President Trump's fault. Given your warning uh, almost a year ago and what we know now, uh, is there an enormous failure of policy that has created this problem and made it worse? You know, our struggle globally to respond to pandemics goes back now decades. And the challenge fundamentally is because of a lack of preparedness in the world of biodefense, as we have, I believe, in the broader defense complex. In, in the case of pandemics, these are, uh, these are pathogens. We don't know where they're going to come from. We don't know what shape they're going to take. And you need to maintain a baseline level of preparedness across the global system. What we see time and again, if you go back to SARS, if you go back to swine flu H1N1 2009, there's a surge of effort right after a pandemic. 
And then the effort starts to fade away. We don't maintain the R&D. We don't maintain the manufacturing. We don't maintain the preparedness within hospitals. And then another pandemic hits, and then we're not ready. And I think a lot of that has to do of, of us viewing this as a health issue rather than a kind of health and defense and, and broader societal topic that would lead, I think, to much stronger preparedness in the system. I think that's what we're going to need coming out of this, a much better uh, c- continuous effort to maintain a level of preparedness across all players and across the system. And, and can we be blunt about this, Vaz? Like this time around, hopefully, hopefully we can get a great resolution. Science can have an answer this time around. But if we don't get more prepared, we could have something like the Spanish flu again, couldn't we? If indeed, um, with the catastrophic scale that had on the human population in, in, in 19, 1918, 1919 as well, if we don't get prepared, this could be much worse next time around, couldn't it? Uh, well, I'm an optimist, and I believe, of course, in the power of biopharmaceutical innovation. But, you know, we are always fortunate when these viruses ultimately look like to have lower case fatality rates. And in this case, I think a virus that spreads quite broadly and generally with mild symptoms. You could certainly imagine scenarios uh, with viruses with different profiles, which would have a much e- even tougher toll on the healthcare system. All the more reason that we need to now uh, ensure after this pandemic once we're through it, to really ensure the preparedness. We've written reports and reports and reports for many years on the topic of pandemic preparedness. I'm hopeful this time around, uh, you know, the world globally takes the topic very seriously. Yeah, Vaz, um, just as part of that, um, I know that you spent some time at the WHO. Um, We obviously need to have another look at the early warning machinery. Uh, The WHO is a body that we've relied upon, but there was a precious month between the WHO being alerted about some new kind of pneumonia or flu virus and ultimately it escalating its warning to the rest of the world. And um, you will have heard the whispers, uh, as others have, about whether they've been unduly influenced uh, by China over recent years. Um, What do you think we can do in terms of best practice to shake up the way this early warning system works? It's been a a challenge for decades to ensure that when we see early signals of an emerging pathogen, that the information flows happen very quickly. This is in part due, I think, very understandably, countries are very concerned about the economic uh, and travel tourism consequences of having an outbreak within their borders. And and this happens whether it's in in, in any region of, of the world. You know, what I think we need to have is a kind of global understanding, given what we're seeing now with COVID-19, that any country that sees the smallest signal needs to bring that to global attention, you know, very quickly. And then, as you see now, weeks matter, especially with the level of travel we have all around the world. Um, I don't know specifically what we could do beyond continuing to to emphasize to countries, uh, you know, regardless of where they are in the world and what economic situation they're in, that they need to bring this to scientists' awareness so that we can start to work on our drugs, vaccines, counter-defense strategies. Uh, But it's been a challenge for for many decades, this topic. Uh, And just very quickly, I'm sure I already know the answer to this, but I just wanted to make sure uh, for our audience's sake, 
Is there any issue with funding at the moment in any area when it comes to developing a way of combating this virus? Because we we talk about the headline fiscal and monetary stimulus here on CNBC every day, but sometimes that money doesn't always find its way into the right research product uh, projects or the right products. I think what's extraordinary right now from a biopharmaceutical development standpoint is the amount of resources that are going in, and, and a lot of it just philanthropic. I mean, we've committed to donate 130 million doses of hydroxychloroquine uh, if it's proved to be effective. We're scaling our manufacturing uh, to even get into higher volumes. We similarly are funding the full range of R&D efforts. Our counterparts in the industry are, are doing the same. So I don't see a topic right now with respect to the funding of the research and development, you see the Gates Foundation, Wellcome Trust, and others stepping in. Uh, I think down the line, what has been a challenge in the past is with vaccine manufacturing, primarily because it takes time to build up vaccine manufacturing capacity. Um, I'm hopeful that with the vaccines we're currently developing, we can rapidly scale manufacturing. That's one of the elements of the consortia we announced yesterday, to find ways to share manufacturing capacity. So I think right now the world is doing the right thing and focusing the funding on hospitals and healthcare uh, institutions that are caring for patients. Uh, and I think the funding right now is adequate for, for biopharmaceutical and vaccine development. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.